Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. And while you're doing that, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's uh, my great privilege this morning to open up God's Word uh, with all of you. I'm excited. I'm especially excited about uh, being able to finish 1 Peter. Uh, not because I'm excited to finish 1 Peter, but uh, it's, it's been quite the, uh, the, the series. Um, and so we're going to be at the, at the end here. We're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14. 6 through 14. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've, we've seen a lot. We've seen a lot going on in 1 Peter. He's told us a lot about what it means to live as exiles, which has been the, uh, the, the, the title of this series, has been living as exiles. We've learned that it, it, while we're living in a, a broken and sinful world, it's going to be sometimes even hostile for us as Christians. That being a Christian is sometimes going to be hard. It might even involve suffering. And Peter has told us that not only should we embrace that suffering, but that we should even rejoice in that suffering. Because it affects our witness. It affects our love and our hope in Jesus. And so whether that suffering is a result of maybe living for Christ, maybe it's, it's some sort of maligning or you're being made fun of, maybe even some sort of persecution, or maybe that suffering is simply that you, you're going through a hard time, you're going through a trial or some suffering, and you're trying to live for Christ in the midst of that. That can be hard as well. And so we should, if you're like me, you're sort of anticipating, how is Peter going to close this letter? And what's he going to say? What are his final comments or final exhortations going to be to us? And so let's read that. We're going to see how Peter ends this letter. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5. You can follow along with me. I'll start in verse 6 through the end. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's the word of God for us this morning. And, you know, I had this, uh, this great illustration to open us up about my children and how I love that when they need help, they, they still embrace uh, the care and the help of their father. Um, but God really impressed something else upon me just this past evening, just this past night, interestingly enough. There's this passage here where I'm to, 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 to proclaim this idea of casting our anxieties on God and that there's an enemy looking to devour us. And sure enough, last night, um, I'm, 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 I'm trying to go to bed, go to sleep last night, get some rest. I could not sleep last night. And I wasn't particularly nervous about the sermon or about getting up in front and, 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 and preaching. That wasn't the case. I mean, there's always a little bit of that in terms of handling the Word of God well. But I wasn't particularly nervous. I just couldn't sleep. And I was tossing and turning, and I just couldn't figure it out. And at some point, probably two in the morning, I don't know, I remember just being frustrated and thinking, ah, like, man, I'm going to be so tired tomorrow, and i got to preach, and i got to be there early. And, and I started thinking about that stuff and getting frustrated. And then sometime later, I realized... I'm feeling kind of anxious. And I thought, imagine that. Imagine that I'm getting ready to proclaim the word of God and I'm feeling anxious and I'm going to speak about our anxieties and about how there's an enemy. There's an enemy who doesn't want me to be confident. There's, not, there's an enemy who doesn't want us to hear the word of God clearly. He wants me to be anxious. He wants you to be anxious and fearful. And so at some point I just chuckled and I said, of course, it's like, nice try, devil, nice try. And I decided to pray. I decided to pray. And then I've been extremely encouraged getting here this morning. All the people have said, oh, I'm praying for you. And, and uh, anyway, so I, I just felt like God impressed that upon me. Like, yeah, this is real, right? This is real. And we'll, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go through this. Um, 
And so as we, and, and what we're going to see, what Peter's going to share with us about these hard times, whether it's, right, just not sleeping well, or wh- whatever struggle it is that you're going through, what he's going to say, what he's saying in this text is that if we're going to stand firm in our suffering, that we need to entrust ourselves to the sovereign care of God. Right, that if we're going, that, that, that for us to stand firm in our suffering, we need to entrust ourselves to the sovereign care of God. He cares for you. And so I, I think, you know, Peter knows about this. He knows about standing firm and not standing firm. Right, this is the guy who, when, when things got hard for Jesus, when Jesus was arrested and, and, and being taken away to be crucified, and, and, and Peter realized, oh man, if they find out that I'm associated with him, things might be tough for me, what did he do? I, I don't know that guy. I'm not one of his followers. But then you fast forward, and he's the same Peter who was, was restored to Jesus, who repented, who was given the Spirit. He was told that, that, that Jesus said, I'll build my rock upon this church. He was eventually martyred for his faith. So he has stood on both sides of this. And so I think we would do well, very well, to pay close attention to Peter's final comments here about how we can stand firm in the midst of our suffering and our difficulty. So before we unpack this, let me pray. Oh, Father God, we are so thankful for your word. God, we are so thankful for the, uh, the encouragement and the challenge and, uh, that we've heard from uh, this epistle. God, we trust that your word is living and active, and we pray that, you would, um, you, you would, you, that, that, that your word would penetrate our hearts this morning, Pray that we would hear your word, that we would heed your word. Father, we ask you to, uh, to teach us and to train us this morning. God, help us to see what you have for us in your word. May your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we see here in verses 6 through 7 is that we need to humble ourselves. And we humble ourselves before God. We humble ourselves before God. This is a direct connection back to verse 5. Mike ended last week's sermon with verse 5 where uh, Peter said, all of you should clothe yourselves with humility because, and he quotes Proverbs, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what Peter does here is he's picking up, he's picking this up in verse 6 and he's saying, hey, if if God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble, then you want to humble yourself, not be proud, right? You want to humble yourself. Notice that Peter does not say that God helps those who help themselves. What does Peter say? God helps those who humble themselves. God helps those who humble themselves. And so what does it mean to be humble? Well, one way we can look at it, on one hand, humility or being humble is, is, is putting others first. Right, So th- this is what Paul says in, in, in Philippians 2 where he says that we should um, do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than ourselves. And so part of being uh, humble is putting others first. But here Peter's specifically talking about humble yourselves before God, under God's mighty hand. And last week Mike mentioned that humility is understanding who we are in light of who God is. That as we exalt God in our lives, that we take a step back and rely less on ourselves. I, I, I looked up some definitions, and one of the ones that I just loved, I loved this definition of, of humble as a verb, like to humble ourselves. It is to destroy our independence, power, or will. To destroy our own independence, power, or will. We stop trying to do things our own way. That's how we humble ourselves before God. As Christians, we follow the example of Jesus by putting God's will before our own will. Now, I spent a number of years in the military, and most of you folks that have been in the military know that we have, we spend a lot of time memorizing leadership traits and leadership principles. Maybe some of you have done that in other, in other places. But there was, there was 14 leadership traits we had to memorize. Humility was not one of them. Okay, And I used to always say, and I would tell people, humility should be the 15th leadership trait. And most of the time, that was not received very well. And I think it's because our society does not value humility, right? Being humble is not something that we're taught to do in this world. In fact, we're taught to promote ourselves. And I think it's because, and we, we even struggle with this in the church, right? We're afraid that being humble 
that if I humble myself, it means I'm going to have to take a back seat. It means that I'm not going to be in charge anymore. I'm not going to be able to make the decisions. We're afraid of not being in control. We're not going to be in control of our own fate or our own circumstances, and I think that scares us. But what we need to remember as children of God is that giving up control is not a bad thing. Because we're not humbling ourselves for the sake of some self-depreciation or self-deprecation, right? We're, we humble ourselves, listen church, we humble ourselves because we serve a God who is much more capable and worthy than we are. Amen? And so then Peter goes on here to give us sort of some handles on what humility looks like or why we humble ourselves and what we can do. And first, in verse 6, he says that we humble ourselves because we trust that God is sovereign to deliver us. We trust in God's sovereignty to deliver us. And you might be thinking, Brian, it doesn't say anything about deliver. Well, he says that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And you can be sure that when Peter's audience heard the mighty hand of God, what they thought about was the the multiple times that God had delivered his people from suffering and from hardship. In the Old Testament, the, the term mighty hand of God is used a couple dozen times, and almost every single one of those times, it's referring specifically to God bringing his people out of Egypt. And the other times are still used in reference to God's protection or deliverance of his people. You can be sure that the Israelites understood what it meant to live as exiles or to suffer, right, under, under the hand of persecution, under Pharaoh, or just in something that was maybe uncomfortable or difficult, like when they were wandering in the wilderness. Yet they were constantly reminded, mostly because the Israelites needed to be constantly reminded, kind of like we do, that it was the mighty hand of God who delivered them. And so do you believe, do you believe that the sovereign and mighty hand of God will deliver you. That he will rescue you, or as Peter says, will exalt you. Or are you still trying to rescue yourself? Or are you trying to exalt your own will or your own agenda above God's? Because what we tend to do is we try, to, we, we try and we try and we try to fix our own circumstances, right? We, 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 we think, I need to do something about this. I need to fight back and I need to take matters in my, own, in my own hands. And what we end up doing is we get angry or we complain or we live in fear and anxiety. And that fear and anxiety begins to choke us out, kind of like Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower. All the while, God is waiting for us to acknowledge our own weakness and inability and submit to the help of his mighty hand and submit to his help. Because when we humble ourselves... Under God, what we're doing, we're functionally saying, God, you are able when I am not. We're saying, God, you are sufficient, I am insufficient. We're saying, God, you are strong when I am weak. You are infinite and I am finite. You are sovereign and I am not. We're saying, God, I trust that you have a plan to deliver me. Whether I can see it or not right now, whether I understand it or not, I know, God, that you will fulfill your promise to deliver me or to exalt me. So we humble ourselves because we trust in the sovereign and mighty hand of God to deliver us or to exalt us. And this paradox of being humble is nothing new, right? Peter didn't get this from some philosophy book. He didn't make this up. It comes from Jesus. Jesus said this in all the gospels we read about how the humble will be exalted I think of the, in Luke 18, there's the parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who uh, go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee says, oh, look at me, God. I'm so much better compared to this guy over here. And meanwhile, this guy over here, the tax collector is saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it's that guy. It's the tax collector who's justified. And he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The humble will be exalted. But Peter says, when does that happen? At the proper time. Timing's important here, folks. It takes an eternal perspective to fully grasp what Peter's saying here. Because too often, we, we give up when God's timing is not our timing. 
right? When we don't see God doing what we want him to do when we want him to do it. So we pray for something. We're praying for God to do something about our circumstances or whatever it is we're, we're dealing with, and he doesn't do it. And we wait hours, days, maybe weeks or months, but we don't see God doing something, and so we just stop. We give up praying. How many things have you begun praying for that you didn't continue to pray for because you just didn't see God working? Or even worse, we'll begin to question God sometimes. But Peter wants us to think eternally. We've seen this throughout the book. We're going to see it again in a few moments. He's not promising exaltation on earth. I'm not saying that God doesn't sometimes deliver us from circumstances on earth. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that's not the guarantee. The guarantee is eternal. Peter's not saying just wait a couple days and your circumstances will go away. He's not saying have more faith and you'll be fine. We must have eternity in mind when we think about exaltation because no matter how bad it gets here, it's only temporary in light of eternity. So in order to face our suffering, we must humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. But listen to this, church. That mighty hand is not a cold, distant, mean hand. It's the mighty hand of a God who cares deeply and intimately about you. And that's why Peter tells us in verse 7 that another reason we humble ourselves is because we trust that God cares for us. And we'll talk in a moment about casting our anxieties on him, but we do that because God cares for us. Do you know that, church? Do you hear that? Do you understand that? If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God cares for you. If you're an unbeliever in here, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're not a believer, God cares for you too. Now, his care is primary, primarily for your soul. He wants a, to, to have a reconciled relationship with you so that you can spend eternity with him in heaven rather than separated from him in hell. So his care for you, if you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe in Jesus, his care for you shows up in the person and work of Jesus. That he sent his son to the earth so that he could take all of your sins, all of, all of our sins, upon himself as he died on that cross so that your son, your, your, so that your son, so that your sins would be punished and taken care of. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how much God cares for you, even as an unbeliever. And so if you don't believe, what you would do well to embrace the care of God this morning by trusting and believing in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. If you want to talk more about that, you want to pray about that, feel free to grab me after the service, grab one of the other uh, folks, grab the person you came with, um, and we'd be happy to talk some more about that and pray with you. But for those of you who are believers... Those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have been adopted. You are his children. And God is a loving and compassionate father who cares for his children. And some of you need to hear that right now. Some of you really need to hear that this morning. Because you're going through something hard. And you're going through something difficult. And you need to know that God has not forgotten about you. God has not abandoned you. God cares for you. He cares deeply and intimately about you. Nobody cares about you more than God. This is the God who cares about you so much that he sacrificed his son to have a relationship with you. That he adopted you as a child and he promises to give good gifts to his children. He cares about you so much that he promises to give you rest when you're weary and burdened. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. He cares about you so much that he promises to protect you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. He cares about you so much that he says this, that one day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There shall be no more mourning, no crying, nor pain anymore. He cares deeply about us. And the word care, this is awesome, right? This word care that we read about here in the Greek, that's not a one-time thing that he, he just cares about you or he cared once for you when he sent Jesus. It's actually a word in the Greek that is present and continuous, it means that he is caring for you. He always has, he always is, he always will. God is the perfect caretaker. 
And this perfect and infinite care of God is why we are commanded to cast our anxieties on him. That's why we cast our anxieties on him. Would you cast your anxieties on somebody that doesn't care about you? Who do you share your burdens with? Somebody who cares about you. And when we're going through something hard, kind of looking at the the, the context of what Peter's been talking about, the suffering, the hardships, the trials, going through something hard or difficult, fear, anxiety, whatever it may be, it's easy to become worried and anxious in those times. And are you going to hold on to that anxiety and try to control the circumstances yourself and try to take control and just fight against it with all your might? Or will you cast your anxieties on him? Peter says, cast your anxieties on him. You need to let go of those. You need to pray about those things. Paul said the same thing, right? In Philippians 4, Paul said, "Uh, don't worry about anything. Do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition, present your request to God. Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said it in Matthew 6. He said, I I took care of the, the birds and the grass and the flowers. Won't I take care of you? It says, don't worry about it. Now, I do think it's important. Peter doesn't say that godly people will never have anxiety or that they will never be anxious. Peter says that godly people know what to do with their anxiety. They know what to do with their anxiety. And in fact, when you don't, if part of humbling yourself is casting your anxiety on him, then what does it mean when you don't cast your anxiety on him? That's a sign of pride. It's a sign of pride because what you're saying is, God, I don't need your help. I got this one. I can take care of this one by myself. So it's a form of pride. So let me ask you this. What are you worrying about that you should be praying about? What are you worrying about that you should be praying about or that you should be going to God with? Is there something that you're having a hard time letting go of, something you're trying to control? Maybe you're fearful or anxious or worried about something maybe it's a health concern you're going through something with your health i know we have a lot of folks in the church dealing with that maybe it's something political or just looking at the world around us and we 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 we, we see what's going on and we're worried about the future of our our family or our, our our country or even our church maybe it's some strained relationship For many of you, I know it's family. I know a lot of you struggle with having prodigal children. What is it that you might be fearful or anxious or worrying about? And what will you do with it? You're going to hold on to it and try to control it? Or will you give it to the mighty hand of the sovereign God who cares about you? We should see humbling ourselves as a great privilege. Humbling ourselves before God is the privilege of being able to give our worries and our anxieties over to the mighty hand of God who loves us, who cares for us, who promises to exalt us at the proper time. What a great privilege. But there's also some some bad news, and then it gets good again. Because as we move into verses 8 through 11, what we find out, what we're reminded of, unfortunately, is that we have an adversary. We've got an enemy who wants to discredit God and his word. He wants us to be proud, not humble. The devil wants us to doubt the sovereignty of God's mighty hand. He wants us to be worried and anxious. He wants us to question God's care for us. And that's why in verses 8 through 11, we see that God, you know, Peter tells us to be alert, to be sober-minded, to be watchful, to resist the devil. What he's telling us is that we need to stand firm in the face of opposition. We need to stand firm in the face of opposition. And the first way we do that is by remaining watchful and alert. We remain watchful and alert. You know, when we allow ourselves to be distracted, when we're not watchful, we're being distracted or or we're being consumed by something else, You think of that sober-minded idea, right? Being sober is not being drunk. 
not being drunk with alcohol, that's also good advice, okay? But he's talking sober-minded. Don't be distracted. Don't be consumed by other things that are going to keep your focus off of God. Because when you begin to be distracted, when you begin to be consumed by those other things, you let down your guard. You let down your inhibitions. And you're not aware of what's going on, so you're just going about that Christian life. Oh, I've let my fears and anxieties go. And then you get smacked upside the head. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? I had no idea. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to be alert. We need to be watchful. We need to be aware. We need to be prepared. And I think we often don't take this serious enough. That we're in a spiritual battle with an enemy who's on the prowl. Now, I'll talk for a, in a moment about how I, I also don't want us to give the devil too much credit. Okay, but there is an enemy. And we are often not watchful. We are not alert. I think about this idea of being on watch, right? It means having somebody in a watchtower or somebody who's looking out and what they're doing is they're watching for threats or dangers so that they can alert other people of what's going on. And I can tell you from my own experience that when there's no enemy out there or there's no actual threat and you know there isn't one, that that person is usually distracted. They're gonna be playing on their phone or talking to somebody else or they're gonna fall asleep because there's just, why am I really here? But if you know there's an enemy, suddenly that, that idea of being on watch takes on a whole new meaning. If we're going to be watchful, what we need to be aware of, what we need to be mindful of, is what is it that's going to distract us? What's going to take our attention away, and in this case, from God? What is it that is distracting you and keeping you from being watchful? What is keeping you from fellowship? What is keeping you from spending time in prayer? What is keeping you from God's word? We need to take serious the fact that we have an enemy. And part of that is that we need to be mindful of the enemy's tactics. So we're watchful and alert, and then we're mindful of, of the enemy's tactics. We're mindful of who he is. This verse here where we're talking about how uh, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, we often associate that with, with temptation and sin. The devil's out there, and he's looking to tempt you and, and, and to make you sin. There's some truth to that, okay? The devil is doing that. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't always need the devil's help to, for me to sin, okay? I'm sure most of you are in the same boat as me. But I think that when we only think about this in terms of sin and temptation, what we're doing is we're missing the full context of what Peter's talking about. Peter's been talking about suffering and hardship. When times get tough, when being a Christian isn't easy, when are you most vulnerable? When are you most vulnerable to the attack of the enemy? It's going to be when you're going through something hard. When you're mad or you're angry or you're frustrated or you're sad, or you're fearful or anxious, whatever, that's when you're vulnerable. When you're upset about something, it could be your job, it might be health, it might be family, politics, something, right? Something's going on and you're vulnerable. And you know what the enemy wants to do? He wants to devour you. He wants to destroy your faith. This is not just about getting you to sin. Think about the context of what we just read. What the devil wants is he doesn't want you to humble yourself. He wants you to be proud. He wants you to say, I got this. I can handle this myself. The devil wants you to not cast your anxieties on God. He wants you to live in fear and anxiety. He wants you to doubt the mighty hand of God. Wants you to question when you're going through something. He wants you to say, God, can, can God really help me? Does God really see what's going on in my life? He wants you to question God's care for you in your suffering. Does God really care about me? Is God really good? You see, the enemy wants us to live in fear and doubt, not in hope and humility. And we need to stand against that. And we're going to talk in a moment about how we stand against that. But let me ask a few questions here. Where are you weak or vulnerable? Where are you currently struggling? Where is the place where the enemy might be able to get you or is getting at you? Is it because you're distracted? Are you consumed by other things or you're not being watchful? So what is it? Is something taking your attention from God? Maybe it's pride. Maybe that's where you're vulnerable. You want to do things on your own. You don't want to admit your weaknesses or your inabilities. Maybe you're worried and anxious about something and you're not trusting God. Maybe you're going through something, some situation, and you're doubting God's care for you. 
or you're questioning his goodness. Maybe you're wondering, is God really sovereign in this? Will he really deliver me, either on earth or even in heaven? Maybe some of you are doubting your salvation in this. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's this idea that, well, I don't want to tell people what I'm going through. I don't want to let people know and have them pray for me because I'm afraid of what they might think. See, these are all areas where the enemy wants to attack you, wants to devour you, and he might do that or you might be doing that to yourself and he sees that as an opportunity to destroy your faith. He wants you to give up. The devil wants you to give up. Which is why Peter turns here, thankfully, from these warnings about the enemy to some encouragement about how we can resist him. And the first way we resist him is that we stand firm in our faith. We stand firm in our faith. He says, resist, resist him, firm in your faith. He doesn't say firm in yourself. He doesn't say firm in your own abilities. He says firm in your faith. And remember, see, it's kind of weird here that, that I don't know if any of you picked up on this, that, that Peter's referring to the devil as a lion. You know, usually God might be or Jesus is or he's, and, and the devil's usually a serpent or something. But remember that just a few verses ago, Mike talked about this last week, what were we called? Sheep, right? So now you see this contrast of we're a sheep and he's a lion. Who's going to win that battle? Right? That's not even a contest. So how would we as a sheep defend ourselves against a lion? How would a sheep defend themselves against a lion? The shepherd. They're going to rely on the shepherd to protect them, to fight off the lion. And so we resist the adversary by placing our faith in the good shepherd, in the good shepherd. And I think this is important because too often, church, too often I think we try to fight Satan ourselves, right? We're like, oh, I got to rebuke Satan. I got to fight Satan. And, and, and here's the thing. We don't really... We don't have the, the power and authority to do that ourselves. Now, I know what some of you may say, and I get it. The God who dwells within us is greater than he that is in the world. The spirit that dwells within us does give us the power to overcome evil. Okay, but we are still sinners. Right? And so here's what I'm saying. If Satan's attacking me, I can try to go fight him with the spirit that's in me, or I can hide in the shelter and the refuge of the mighty hand of God. The one who already has the victory. It's like taking a knife to a, a gunfight, right? Why would I, to go back to sort of the battle imagery, if, if, I'm, if I'm being watchful and the enemy's coming, I can go run out there with my bayonet or my rifle all by myself, or I can go hide here behind the tanks and the artillery and let them take care of it, okay? So we want to place our faith in the shepherd who we know already has victory over the lion. And then not only do we stand firm in our faith in the good shepherd, we stand firm in fellowship. We want to stand firm in fellowship. Peter says here that knowing, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your, brother, by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, part of resisting the enemy and having faith in, in, in God's plan is remembering that we're not, or is that we're not alone. That our plight isn't necessarily worse than others. Now, I'm not saying what you're going through might not be pretty bad or worse than some others. But a lot of times it causes us to think, oh, but these other people have it so much better than I do. Or, or even worse, maybe God loves them more than me. What we need to remember is that we're in this together. Right? That's what he's saying. Remember, uh, your brothers and sisters are going through this. Other people have gone through it. They're going through it. We're in this together. Corporately as a church, let me tell you something. Any individual in this room or in this body who's going through something is not going through it alone. And if they are, then they're doing it wrong or we're doing it wrong. We're in this together. We're in this as a church. We're not in this individually. And so whether it's persecution and we need to think about others have it just as bad. In fact, as American Christians, others have it a lot worse. And we remember that not only do some of those folks endure, but the church actually grows. Right? That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But maybe it's not persecution. Maybe it's just hard times. What you're going through, you're going through a difficult time. And what you need to remember, because another tactic of the enemy is what? Oh, you're alone. Nobody else is going through what you're going through. Nobody else understands 
You're in this by yourself. So we need to remember that we're here for each other. Somebody's going through something as well, or they've been through what you've, you've been through. They're here for you. We're here to help each other. The, 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 the Bible tells us that we are comforted so that we can comfort others. We are to weep with those who weep. And so for some of you, you've been through it. You've been through some sort of struggle, or maybe you're going through it. And when you see someone else going through that, you need to come alongside them and pray for them and comfort them and remind them of God's goodness and God's grace. And if you're going through it, you need to surround yourself with those people and ask them to pray for you and come alongside you and comfort you and remind you of those things. And one of those things that we need to be reminding each other of is our hope. Because we stand firm in faith, we stand firm in fellowship, we also stand firm in hope. It says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore and comfort, excuse me, confirm and comfort and strengthen and establish you. It says, after you have suffered, not if you suffer, after you've suffered, whatever that suffering is for you, for a little while, we have a hard time with that for a little while thing because sometimes it feels like it's, it's forever. We have to remember, though, that our time on earth is a drop in the bucket. It's a vapor. It's but a mist. So it only makes sense, this idea of suffering for a little while. For some of you, you understand this better than others. It only makes sense when you look at it from an eternal perspective from the perspective of eternity, which is what Peter does because he says, the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory. He has called us to eternal glory, not earthly glory. Our ultimate reward is in heaven. And in heaven is where we are going to fully realize and fully understand and fully experience this idea that we are going to be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. We'll see a little bit of that on earth sometimes for some of us more than others. Peter experienced some of this. But as long as we're living in a broken and sinful world, we need to long for heaven because it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be good enough. So listen, church, no matter how broken you are physically, spiritually, emotionally, you will one day be restored. No matter how scared or frustrated you may be, your faith will one day be confirmed. No matter how weak and tired you may feel, you will one day be strengthened. No matter how unstable or unsure you might be, you will one day be established forever in glory with God. And that's why Peter says, to him, to him be dominion forever. The devil might be called the God of this world or the God of this age, but he has no real power over God and his people. So this is a reminder that Christ's dominion, his dominion is for eternity. That is where our citizenship is. That is the kingdom to which we belong. That's what gives us the hope to endure the trials and the suffering and the hardships and the fears and the anxieties that we go through is knowing and understanding the hope that we have in Jesus. Because the promise of that kingdom, the promise of our inheritance is secure. It's guaranteed because of what Christ accomplished on our behalf. Peter said right here, he called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And it's that idea there that, that this is all this hope is guaranteed to us because of what Christ accomplished. It's on that note that I want us to come to the Lord's table this morning. Now, we're not done. I do have there's a couple more verses. I have one more point after communion. It'll be short. But as we come to the Lord's table right now, I just want us to think about how we, get, how we can endure in this, in this life because a greater glory awaits us in heaven. I want you to remember that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that through the shedding of his blood, our hope is secure. That the sacrifice of Jesus has secured for us a greater glory than we could ever fathom here on earth. So as we come to the table, 
as you think about that sacrifice Jesus made on your behalf so that you could have that hope of eternal glory, you'll come forward. I want you to remind you that here at Faith Church, we practice an open communion. It means you don't have to be a member of our church, but you do need to be a believer. It's reserved for believers. So if you're not a believer, we'd actually ask that you take this time to reflect on your eternity and, and how Christ has secured for you an eternity, hopefully in heaven when you embrace and believe in him. For the rest of you, as you come forward, you'll grab the elements and take them back to your seats. There's five tables. There's two in the back. There's three up here. There's a gluten-free option in the, uh, the gold uh, plate here. Come forward. You'll grab the elements, take them back to your seats, and spend a moment just reflecting on, on what Christ has done to give us hope so that we can endure whatever we're going through in this life. So church, come to the table, grab the elements, take them back to your seat. As you're reflecting, take a moment to praise God for the truth that our struggles on earth are only temporary in light of our eternal glory. Take a moment and confess in any ways in which maybe you've been prideful you haven't humbled yourself things that you need to give to God as we think about this hope that we have in Jesus and we've talked about this idea of humbling ourselves before God. I think it's fitting for us to look at what the what I believe is the ultimate example of humility that we find not only in the scriptures but in all the world. Because the ultimate example of humility is Jesus going to the cross. So listen as I read from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's what Jesus did on the cross for us. It's the ultimate example of humility, putting God's will ahead, ahead of his own. And that's what, we're, what we're, we are remembering now. The night before that happened, he was eating with his disciples. And while he was doing so, while he was eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. And so remember, church, that this, is, this represents the body in which Jesus humbled himself on earth on our behalf. Let's eat together. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This cup represents what Jesus has done for us to give us that hope of eternity. Let's drink together. And then he said, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What a great promise that Jesus won't partake again until we are with him. It's just another reminder that we have something glorious to look forward to. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the work of Christ to secure our inheritance. Thank you for the hope that we have in eternity because of Jesus. God, this is the reminder of our, this reminds us of the ultimate humility of Jesus in dying for us. And God, we pray that we would always remember your example and your promises as we persevere in this life until we feast with you. Amen. And then we want to look at this last verse here. I want to close with verses 12 through 14, where he talks about by Silvanus, this other brother, right, who, I, who I'm writing to you. Um, I'm exhorting the true grace of God, stand firm in it. And then he talks about she who's at Babylon, which is likely the church at Babylon, sends greetings, so does Mark. What Peter's doing here is he's exhorting us to stand firm, and I believe that we should be exhorting others to stand, stand firm. That's what he's, he's saying. Hey, my brother and I, my brother Sylvanus here, he and I have written to you to remind you of God's grace so that you'll stand firm. Peter knows what they're going through. He knows that it's a struggle. He knows that it can be hard. He relates. He knows that living for Christ can be difficult, and so he wants to remind them to stand firm in the grace of God. He's saying, don't give up. And we need that reminder Right? We all need that reminder. Anyone who is striving to persevere in the midst of this broken and sinful world needs to remember to stand firm in God's grace. And so Peter reminds us of that. And I would argue that we should be doing the same for others, reminding one another that we're not in this alone, like I talked about before. We're all in this together. Peter's saying, look, Sylvanus and the church in Babylon and Mark, we're, we're, we might not be there with you physically, but we're here we send our greetings. We understand. And then he goes on to say that we should greet each other and seek peace with one another. He's not talking about peace, love, and happiness. This isn't the kind of peace where the world says that peace is the absence of any trouble or conflict. Peter's talking about peace among brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter's talking about the camaraderie that exists among those who are striving to persevere through the challenges and difficulties of this life together. There's a saying that many of you have heard, that misery loves company. And for those of you that have been through hard times with somebody else, you know that that's absolutely true. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here, is that, hey, we get it. And as we go through these difficulties in life, as we help one another, as we come alongside one another, as we pray for each other because we're all in this together, that we should be growing together. We should have peace with one another and be greeting one another and be doing community together. We should be together in this. 
And so we exhort one another to stand firm. And so in summary, Peter tells us that to persevere in this life, we need to humble ourselves before a great and mighty God, casting our anxieties, our fears, our worries upon him because he cares for us and because he's faithful to deliver us. And once we do that, we can stand firm against the adversary who's trying to destroy our faith. And as we stand firm in our faith, we stand firm with others, exhorting them and reminding them and reminding one another of the true and glorious grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for these words of First Peter that have been given to us for our good to challenge and to comfort and to encourage us. God, we praise you for the hope that we have in your son. And we ask you, Lord, to forgive us for the times in which we have questioned you or, or doubted you. And God, we ask you to give us the strength to, to remain focused on you, to be watchful, to be focused on you even in our fears and in our struggling and our suffering. Whatever we're facing, God, help us to remain strong. Give us the humility to trust in your promises and to care for us and deliver us. Father, give us the strength to stand firm, to stand firm through faith and in fellowship and, 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 and hope. And God, give us the opportunity to exhort and encourage others in their faith to help them to stand firm. And God, in all things, in all things, may we seek your face. May we live in light of eternity, God. May we see our suffering and our hardships and our trials, even our fears and our anxieties as an opportunity, Lord, to draw closer to you and to reflect the hope that we have. Help us to stand firm, Lord, in your grace and to glorify your name in all circumstances and in all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.